0: Let's begin with prayer. You would look with me to the Lord. Now, Father, once again this evening, we, we need the Holy Spirit. you promised, Father. you promised through your Son. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall the Father keep on giving without measure the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Lord, we ask. We ask of You to pour out Your Spirit upon us. We long tonight for these things that we grasp in our minds to become living, Experiential. Father, we might know the brilliance of all your glory. Thank you for your people. Thank you for these children. Father, we pray for the children tonight. I agree. If they're old enough to come to Sunday school, they're old enough to come to Calvary. So I pray that sovereign grace would work in the hearts of the oldest of us and the youngest tonight. To the praise of your glory. Amen. Amen. Tonight, if you would, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This is one of the Apostle Paul's prayers, that God was pleased to so inspire that it is in the biblical record for our help and for our edification. This is an important prayer. This is something that was not exclusively limited to the apostolic era. It is something that we need to pray we need to believe God for in this hour so tonight I want to talk to you about a love that surpasses knowledge a love that surpasses knowledge or true to the text even more so than that title would be the importance of being strengthened with might by the spirit look with me if you would Ephesians chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 14. The apostle says, and for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with might through the spirit in your inner being. Who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, as we look at the text tonight, let's first of all, at a glance, consider the context You notice that the passage here beginning in verse 14 begins with a reason. The preface of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians begins with a purpose. And he says for this reason. It's interesting that commentators are divided on what the reason is referring to. Some believe it has to do with the reason back in verse 1, which points to the end of chapter 2. These men believe that Paul is saying that the reason he was being held captive, imprisoned, was for the preaching of the gospel and its benefits to the Gentiles. But on the other hand, there are other commentators that hold this position. They believe that the reason for Paul's prayer is found in verse 13, the preceding verse of the text that I just read, which is to encourage the saints at Ephesus not to lose heart, not to despair. Now, in light of all that the Heavenly Father here has taken the initiative to accomplish For the Gentiles, it is interesting you find Paul dropping to his knees. This is no formality. It is not just simply something that he's doing to impress. I don't think it is something that he's using figuratively here. But it's something literally, he says, I drop to my knees. You see the urgency, the sincerity of the apostles. And it's interesting that he proceeds by praying the benefits of the gospel, watch this now, that they might be fully grasped, not just with the intellect, but that they might know through a supernatural work that they might intuitively grasp the realities of this glorious gospel. The prayer possesses, brothers and sisters, both petition and praise. Paul requests that the Ephesians might be strengthened with might by the Spirit. And then it culminates there at the end of this passage that we've just read, where he rejoices and says, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do we believe that? Do we believe that that he is able to do far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine? Amen. Yes. Think of this. In verse 15 reveals the impartiality of God. This is significant. Listen. He is our Father. But specifically what he's talking about here is he's a father both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And from both groups, he has called his elect and united them together as the whole family in heaven and in earth. It's interesting, the phrase here refers to a common bond of all who have been reconciled with the Father by faith in Christ. It does not note... It does not refer to God giving each of his children individual names. Rather, it speaks of all God's children, whether Jew or Gentile, whether they're in heaven or earth, being under the same father. In other words, listen, he says we are all of the same spiritual family. Barnes comments are priceless here. Listen to what he says. The expression is taken from the custom in a family where all bear the name of the head of the family and the meaning is that all in heaven and on earth are united under one head and constitute one community. One community. So he's not talking about a multiplicity of families as far as domestically is concerned, but he's talking about families that are called out of the Jewish race and the Gentile races. Now it's interesting that when you look at Paul's petition, you might get the impression that he's asking for many blessings for the Ephesians. This is rich content. And I remind you that the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. is the first three chapters... Set forth gospel indicatives. What does that mean very simply? What Christ has done, what Christ has provided through his death, through his gospel. And the last three chapters afford us gospel imperatives. These implications flow out of the good news. Here's a good purpose statement that will help you and encourage you in your walk with God. Gospel indicatives, what Christ has done, afford gospel incentive or motivation to fulfill to the praise of God's glory, gospel imperatives, what Christ has commanded. So here we find there is one petition that is praying. Not many different things that he's praying specifically. You might decipher that at a glance and think that's what he's doing. He's praying for multiple things, but not so. It's one thing, and that is that they might be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. Why is God able to do this? Because of the riches of his glory that you find in the text. Inexhaustible. Abundant. Infinitely so. This infinite reservoir of all of these mercies God has given us through his son. And this is just one of many riches of his glory. Is that God would be pleased to strengthen us with might. By his spirit in the inner man. Now we've heard a lot about Asbury in these days. The Asbury revival. How it spilled over into various college campuses. And some churches have been affected. I have a friend of mine who's an Armenian evangelist. And he put on Facebook where they saw real touches of revival. And meetings that proceeded from the Asbury revival. I'm not going to criticize that. Things that I've heard are legitimate earmarks or manifestations of genuine revival. The fear of the Lord, confession of sin, the joy of the Holy Spirit. People being conscientious of sharing their faith, emboldened to share Christ and Him crucified. Who am I to criticize that? But I know it's given way to a lot of counterfeit Christianity. Those things do concern me. But when we talk about real revival, this is what we're talking about right here. For you see, at the heart of every revival in church history, God has been pleased to pour out his spirit in such a way to strengthen the saints of God with might by his spirit in the inner man. The last thing I wanted when your pastor and I talked about me coming these days is just to go through another meeting. I'm believing God for something for me and for you in these days that God would do something so profound and so supernatural. And we're not talking about just getting into some religious jacuzzi. And having funny feelings and experiences. But we're talking about a vital experience that comes as a result of the Spirit of God moving through the Word of God to bring conviction of sin in our hearts and an awareness of the presence of God. You'll note that while Paul never uses the term revival here, he describes the nature of one. For example, you see that he mentions, brothers and sisters, a greater dimension of love, both in our love for other people and an awareness, a conscientiousness of his love for us. Often in church history, you find that spiritual awakenings, when God was pleased to pour out his spirit, were described as showers of love. Spurgeon said that when revival comes, love flows knee deep. And it does. And there are dimensions of this love. How much he loves us. How we reciprocate back how much we love him. And how much we love people. Love the people of God and love Sinners, even the most difficult of people in our lives, God suddenly takes the field and holds sway over us that we love those that are very unlovable in our eyes. This is revival. And this is what he's talking about. This is the outflow of being strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. So with all that said tonight, I want to give you three major points once again. Please bear with me. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, you see the need for effectual prayer. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, that he would grant you. Now, men and women, this is not just some casual prayer. He's not just verbalizing some petition academically. There's an urgency. There's a heartfeltness behind this prayer. He's believing God for something. Paul was a praying man. His lifestyle of prayer revealed how weak he knew he was in effecting change in the lives of the Ephesians. He was aware that what he had written and prayed for would be in vain unless the Spirit strengthened them to lay hold of these glorious realities. But do we have the same confidence? Do we pray? Do we know anything of our utter weakness? Is our prayerlessness an acknowledgement that we are too dependent on ourselves? Let me remind you that prayer is the language of the poor, the poverty-stricken. And those who posture themselves as beggars when they pray secure the strength of the Spirit. Paul prayed often for the Ephesians. And it's interesting, his ongoing pleas for them revealed his continued dependence on the Lord. Consider with me for a moment, at a glance, how often he prayed, particularly in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. He asked God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation for their spiritual advantage in knowing the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward them. Those are petitions that you don't find on the average church prayer list. Raven Hill was right that the prayer meeting is nothing but a dumping ground for our ills and diseases. We don't pray in a lofty way. But here's Paul praying this, and this is something that we in this hour for our families and for our faith family need to be praying for our churches. He prays again in Ephesians 6 and verse 18. When he says to them that he is praying always with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. And then here in Ephesians chapter 3, he demonstrates his weakness by praying for their spiritual understanding. That through the Spirit's help that they might be able to experience the benefits that he mentions for their walk with God. I agree with S.T. Gordon. You can do nothing better than pray until you prayed. And you can do nothing better than pray after you prayed. But why is it when you call for a meeting to pray these days in churches? Hardly anybody shows up. This is our lifeline, brethren. Every time God chose to pour out His Spirit in the history of the church, He set His people to pray. He pours forth the spirit of prayer and supplication. Do we see the urgency of the hour to pray? If there's one thing, listen, that I myself am disappointed in as I travel across the U.S. and even around the world is the dearth of effectual fervent prayer whatever happened to the prayer of importunity that we keep on seeking and keep on asking and keep on knocking until god is pleased to come and to answer Why we might not like to hear it i'm convinced more and more that we pay tribute to our own self-sufficiency When we don't pray. When we don't pray. Many believers in our day desperately need to be weaned off themselves that they might feel their need to pray. Conrad Merle, some of you have heard of Conrad Merle. I was telling pastor, or maybe one of the men in the church here, either today or yesterday. Somebody asked Conrad Merle one time, said, who could you recommend to come to our church for a conference on prayer? And he said that's very difficult because the people that pray don't talk about it, and the people that talk about it don't pray. Do we pray? You see in Paul's prayer here, the urgency, the fervency, the expectancy, there's a need for effectual prayer. Secondly, there's a need of the Spirit's enablement. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. The latter part of the verse. This is his petition. It's lofty, it's weighty. He prays that they might be strengthened with might through his spirit, through his spirit in the inner man. Please listen up. Throughout Paul's letters, as he writes to the churches and individuals, he uses such phrases, brothers and sisters, as by the Spirit. Through the Spirit, in the Spirit. He is Spirit-driven. There's a consciousness that He has of His utter need, His desperate need of the Holy Spirit. He's dependent on the Father for His petitions, but relies on the Holy Spirit to make effectual those petitions in the hearts of His people. Please note this. In Ephesians alone, you see Paul's consciousness of the Spirit's work. For example, just thumb through the book with me for a moment. Ephesians 2 verse 22. He says, in him you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 3 and verse 5. Paul mentions the mystery of Christ being revealed by the The spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. Once again, strengthen with might through his spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6 and verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, again, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And when Paul talks about praying in the Spirit, he's not talking about praying in tongues. Something that is far more real, a much greater, more effectual dimension. He's referencing here. It's coming for God and being honest with Him. And not being content to simply mouth a petition, but we'll tarry and we'll seek and we'll earnestly agonize until God comes and does something. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand me. I believe the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not conditional. We must believe and we must ask. But we can't conjure up this strengthening of might by a spirit. We are charged to ask. We are charged to believe. But here's what I believe the Bible teaches. Just as we are saved by grace, we are filled by grace. Many times what thwarts or short circuits the work of the Spirit in our lives is we don't pray believing. We don't pray believing which is manifest in expectancy. So the point I want to make is how desperately we need to be consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit to make the things of the gospel real to our lost loved ones And to languishing saints who are drifting presently. Think about this. Have you ever heard someone try to describe a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit? They just can't. But they know the reality of it. They make a stab at it. You can see the evidence of God moving in their life. But they might say, I just can't understand it. But but God came and he met me. Here's a third point. And this is the bulk of the message. As I'm traveling among a lot of young people these days, young preacher boys, young men that are being mentored, young women, but older men and women, been in ministry for years the thing that I'm seeing that is so profoundly deficient is experiential spirituality and it's especially in the reform movement now please don't read something into what I'm saying we need to know the book we need to be studied Students of the Word of God. We need to flesh out truth and not assume that the Bible says something when it doesn't say that. There is one meaning in the Bible. We need to be diligent in studying the Bible to find out what God is saying to the Scriptures. But friend, listen. Don't allow exposition to be an end in itself. It is a means to an end, and that is to show you Christ that you might know all the forms of God. I don't like cerebral Christianity. Don't bore me with all you know. Tell me what God is doing in your life. And in the process, reference the Word of God. This is what God showed me in the Scripture. And I believe God to do this in my life. And He's doing it. There are four things... There are evidences of being strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit. And once again, you see all of these things in spiritual awakenings in the history of the church. First of all, beginning in verse 17. The need of experiential reality. You see, first of all, the manifestation of this in that Christ, he says, may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, what does that mean, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? These people already had Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit living in them. But what does he mean by this? That if you're strengthened with might, what will happen is Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, you'll notice the word that refers to something previous that has occurred. This phrase. You see, these words point once again to that work of the Spirit. The Spirit. And guess what he is being prayed to come and do? That these Christians might know a, are you ready for this? A felt Christ. A felt Christ. You see, it is marvelous, a marvelous thing when the Spirit of God comes and makes one keenly aware that Jesus is in the midst. It's interesting, brethren, we know that we have the person of Jesus resident within in the person of the Spirit. But what Paul refers to here when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he is speaking of a consciousness which entails an enlivening by the Spirit as he's making Jesus real to us in our walk. This is not mystical. This is not charismatic. This is not some hyper subjective thing that has no biblical basis for it, friend, but we're talking about Christ being manifested by His Spirit upon the lives of His people. A felt Christ. Secondly, look at something else that will happen when God's people are strengthened with might by the Spirit. He said that you being rooted and grounded in love, in love. The love mentioned here is the roots of his love. They are driven deep into the inner man of the believer. The idea, listen now, the idea is that the grace of love has been so firmly planted in the hearts of God's people that it affords a comprehension of love that surpasses the mind. In other words, you know Jesus loves you. You have the promises that Jesus loves you. But all of a sudden, friend, there's an animation that occurs. It becomes real. I'm the object of His love. People, their testimony is Christ is drawn near. And we'll look at a couple of these examples in a moment. Where Christ draws near and His presence is so overwhelming... And the love of God just springs forth. They're acutely aware that they are the object of God's love. This dispels fear and doubt. It gives full assurance of salvation. Here's a third thing that happens. The Spirit strengthens with might. And the manifestation of that is in verse 18. Paul's praying for this. That they might have strength to comprehend, notice the word comprehend there, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, now watch this, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's interesting, brothers and sisters, the word comprehend means to spiritually perceive or grasp a dimension of Christ's love that surpasses, once again, what we know academically. The word, listen, the Greek word literally means to throw beyond. It carries with it the idea of throwing beyond the intellect. You know it mentally, You'll never eradicate that from your mind, but suddenly you're enveloped with a knowledge that is of a spiritual sort that you're convinced that Christ does love you. And you hear the testimonies of the saints in great revivals, outpourings of the Holy Spirit, when the love of God is manifest, how people are enraptured with the wonders of his love. Matthew Henry said this, Where Christ dwells, He swells. All of a sudden, you're just enveloped. You're encompassed by the reality of the supernatural presence of Christ. And you have this acute supernatural awareness that He loves you. You see, He was underscoring the reality of an experiential love That was divulged by the Spirit. In other words, listen, it is something that we feel the weight of that exceeds our, are you with me? It exceeds our mental capacity to attain. So yes, once again, friend, we don't overlook the importance of study and acquiring a mental grasp of the love of Christ. But all of a sudden, it takes on a whole different dimension. It is profoundly experiential. Isn't that that something worth praying for in church? Can you imagine the difference it might make in a son or a daughter or a loved one if they encountered this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Here's the fourth thing. Another evidence of being strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Please listen to this. The intent is that the Ephesians, Paul, his intent, and each of us might know the fullness of the person of God himself. To think that God took the initiative to send his son into the world to not only redeem us, but to give us, how about this now? To give us the full measure of himself is unbelievable. It is a great thing that the very God in whom we move and breathe and have our being has given us such a promise. And what is a promise? Look again at verse 19. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hey, listen, friend. It just blows your mind when you realize that That you can be filled with God. But to be filled with the fullness of God. But you didn't stop there. To be filled with all the fullness of God. Where, I mean, you become consciously aware that God comes upon you. And there's such love that's unabating that's being challenged your way. It's something that you're sensing. It's something that you feel in your heart. And suddenly God through that love just holds absolute sway over your being. Paul says that we might be filled with God. What a thought. To be enabled to encounter God in such measure is an awesome token of his love for us. But think about this. Then Paul prays that filling would advance to the measure of fullness. And it's interesting, Paul often uses that word fullness in much of his writings. Partial listing, listen. He speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans 11:25. 25. The fullness of time. In Galatians 4.4, 4, the fullness of him that fills all in all, Ephesians 1.23, the fullness of Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, the fullness of the Godhead in Christ, Colossians 1.19 and Colossians two nine. It means here that you, Paul is praying this, that you might be strengthened with might so that you might have the richest measures of divine consolation and of the divine presence that you may partake of the entire enjoyment of God in the most ample measure in which He bestows His favors on His people. That's incredible. That ought to have us dancing in the street. To think that, The very prospect of that is available to the church. It's something worth praying for, brothers and sisters. So listen carefully as we make it more practical. Revival or spiritual awakening is a sovereign work of God. Now my conviction is if you walk in the spirit, if you want to call it this, I believe if God's people walk in the spirit they would be walking in personal revival. But when we talk about corporate revival or spiritual awakening, this is something that is exclusively sovereign in nature. While man is involved in these heavenly visitations that you see in church history, the Lord of the Church determines their times and seasons. You'll remember, now listen... That Jesus said in Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father hath put in His own power. You can't make it happen. You can't manipulate it happening. Furthermore, in Acts 3-20, We are told that times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And then, in Acts 14, verse 17, Paul and Barnabas declare, listen to this now, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with joy and gladness. In other words, basically what it's pointing to is what Christ said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, the wind blows where he wills. So the Spirit is sovereign. But as Mark Lord John says, and I agree with him, we can ask for this strengthening of might by the Spirit in genuine awakening. We can ask for it. And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters, if God were pleased because the corporate body of believers said, God, you've got to do something for our church, you've got to do something for our community, you've got to do something for our loved ones that are wayward and have no interest in the Savior's blood, if we were that passionate toward God and we stayed the course, I believe that God would do something extraordinary. While the Father ordains these times of awakening, man is actively involved in the movement to cooperate with his spirit. So here's what I want to wrap things up with. These are some personal things. In genuine awakenings, the spirit may pour out the love of Christ on a large body of believers. Sometimes he chooses to do it on an individual. When he performs such a work, he, the recipients are given a tangible sense of the love of God in Christ. Perhaps you've heard of the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, where what he's doing is gleaming from the writings of Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan. I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but the Puritan Thomas Goodwin illustrated this experience that I'm talking about tonight very beautifully by sharing the difference between a customary, happy, good walk with God as a regenerate, spirit-indwelt believer, as opposed to that believer, that same child, experiencing the loving affirmation of the Father coming and embracing with His love. Listen to what he said, quote, Goodwin declares, A man and his child are walking down the road and they are walking hand in hand and the child knows that he is the child of his father. And he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that. And he is happy in it. There is no uncertainty in it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, Fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, and showers his love upon him, and then puts the child down again, and then goes on walking on their way. Goodwin said, that's it. That's what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 3. He said, the child knew before that his father loved him, And he knew that he was his child. But oh, the loving embrace. The extra outpouring. This unusual manifestation of it. That is the kind of thing. The spirit bearing witness with our spirit. That I'm an object of God's love. And I'm a child of God. And in these seasons... When God pours out his spirit, it's amazing people come forward and say, you know, I didn't tell anyone, but there was a deficiency of assurance of salvation. But God closed in my spirit and showed me that I was genuinely born again and that I've been the object of his life all along. Think with me for a moment. These outpourings of love have been poured out on regions around the world. They have come upon large gatherings of saints. Sometimes a whole group of sinners where God just comes in a punctiliar power to arrest them and show them their need of Christ and they're born again. And sometimes only an individual has experienced these manifestations. Think of this. The church is replete with experiences of how the Spirit came in such measure as to envelop people with a profound sense of the love of Christ. So here's another illustration. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a Welsh evangelist by the name of Hal Harris. Harris describes a day, three weeks after his conversion, that the Spirit came upon him. He said, suddenly I felt my heart melting within me like wax before a fire and love to God for my Savior. I felt also not only love and peace, but a longing to die and to be with Christ. I knew I was a child and he loved me and was listening to me. It's interesting in the years that followed, Harris would Reference this experience. And he went on to say that he often referred to that day when God came. And he was overwhelmed with a profound sense of God's love. For example, in a diary entry in the year 1739, he writes, The love of God was shed abroad in my heart four years ago to give myself to God. It's amazing. This is something that's supernatural. Now listen, we're not minimizing the importance of believing God, trusting Him, walking with Him, embracing His commandments and His promises. We're not minimizing any of that, friend, but we're talking about something that is a different dimension. And can you imagine if people were so arrested by the love of God, how their Christianity would become so contagious and impactful in their community? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. To know that God loves you and affirms that and at the same time suddenly the spirit of God is so taking control of you and you're knowing all the fullness of God that you don't lack for boldness and witness because you're being emboldened by the love of God. And you stand before people because you don't fear self and you don't fear men and you stand before them and you share the good tidings of Jesus Christ that this God that has done a work in my life can do a work in yours. My brother Paul Washington has had multiple encounters. Our dear brothers see, from Master's Seminary talked to him in Europe and asked him to explain and as he explained the experiences of what God had done in the way of these overtures of love, these men concluded and said, this is a this is work of God. And I said, Paul... I've experienced this, but not as many times as you have. I've known what it is for my heart to become a well of love, welling up and knowing the pervasive presence, the tangible presence of Christ. I said, I long for that more. I long for that more. And he said to me in passing, he said, Brother Don, he always comes. The problem is, is we get too busy and too preoccupied with things that we don't tarry for his coming. And I say what I've already said in the meeting so far. Brother Paul's told me no less than four times. It was not just some academic passing comment. He said with such reality and experience. He said, brother, if there's one thing I know. He said, I don't know a lot. That's Paul Washer modesty. He said, I don't know a lot, but then he said, if there's one thing I know, it's that God loves me. This is the result, the fruit of being strengthened with might by the spirit in the inner man. So here's what I close with. Let me leave you with this. I mentioned once again that this is what you may see in revival and spiritual awakening. You read it. Read these accounts of revival. The First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the 1859 Northern Revival, the Reformation. Even in the book of Acts, this was nothing more than just the outpouring of the Spirit. Even though it was the advent of the Spirit, there was a manifestation of God's power in the Spirit. And What characterized these movements was this unbelievable, unmistakable, indescribable love. What you may see in these movements when people are being strengthened with might by the Spirit. When He comes, He awakens these realities. He awakens these realities. This is what it's all about. He awakens them to the human heart to such an extent that lives are mightily transformed. (coughs) We grow in our spiritual understanding, brethren, so as to see clearly and know powerfully the riches of His glory. The riches of His glory manifested in four ways, once again from our text. A felt Christ. A being rooted in love. A comprehension of Christ's love for us that exceeds the intellect. And the full measure of God being filled with all the fullness of Himself. And once again, I repeat, to respond to the Apostle Paul's example, this is something worth praying for. This is something worth praying for. Make all the difference in the world. Continue to be salt and light. Continue to walk in the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Holy Spirit as you're walking in step with the Spirit. But friend, trust God. Believe God for the extraordinary. God, please come in mighty revival and power and strengthen your people with might by your spirit in the inner man that the excellency of the power may be of you and not of us. Let's pray together. Father, these things of this nature often are such a mystery to us that we react to them. We don't know how to handle them. Father, I, I want to know more of this work of your spirit. Lord, this is not some... Experience independently of your word that we've looked at tonight. We see this. This is what Paul prayed for the saints at Ephesus. The saints that knew some measure of division in the church. Saints, Lord, that needed to be keenly aware of the realities of the gospel. These gospel indicatives. God, I pray, make these things real to us. Please deliver us, Lord, from something that is just intellectual, an intellectual end in, it, in itself. Lord, may everything we know and may we pursue more and more knowledge of you. May we do it, Lord. May we study the scriptures, read our Bibles, so vitally important. But, Lord, may it always be a means to an end, and that is that we might be Beneficiaries of the felt presence of our Lord. Please help your people. Revive your church. For Christ's sake. Father, I would pray tonight for those who are present. Or outside of the Lord. The ultimate deception is to have a religion without Christ. Father, we know tonight that among even what seemingly is the most best of biblical churches, there are those who have never experienced the reality of saving faith and been genuinely born again. Oh, God, tonight I pray for anyone in our midst who's here without Christ tonight. I pray that through the precious regenerating work of your spirit that Christ might be formed in them. As they come as they are, a corrupt, hell-bound sinner, willing to repent, leave their sin, And look to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Please arrest them. Please, God, do it. Save them, Father, from their deception. Save them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.